seat. For the last several weeks, we've been studying the book of Ephesians in the Bible. One of the main themes of the book of Ephesians is that God taking away the dividing walls of hostility between all different kinds of people is just as real and just as fundamental a part of redemption as our personal salvation or our salvation from our sins. That's how chapter 2 breaks down, for example. The first 10 verses is what God has done for you. And then the next second half of that chapter is how what that means is all of the dividing walls between people can come down in Christ and he can make one new humanity. Um, Instead of preaching about that for one week and then probably forgetting it, which is human nature after the fall at least, um, what we've done is I've encouraged people from the congregation, and we're still receiving these. If you, if, if God has kind of been pushing you to do this and you haven't done it, we've been receiving testimonies from people about just how they have experienced in their lives the dividing walls of hostility and what Jesus has done in their life and through their church or, or Christians around them to help them overcome that. Um, Ellen's is a little bit more of a confession style today, um, but it's about the dividing walls of hostility in the church that comes from um, and overweening legalism, and I think that that's always a danger in churches that are trying to be fully faithful to the gospel. So why don't you listen to her, and then we'll pray. Thanks. Good morning, High Point. I'm Ellen Hurl, and I want to share my story with you. From my earliest childhood, I was surrounded by the gospel. I heard about Jesus at home and at church, but the church I grew up in wore separation as a badge of honor. I heard declared from the pulpit and in Bible classes in Christian school that we were to have nothing to do with fellow believers who didn't agree agree with us on issues like type of music, dress codes, translations of the Bible. In fact, we were told that they weren't really believers, or if they were, they were living in sin. Let me be clear, this was not division over core biblical doctrine. This was refusing to fellowship with other believers in churches over personal preferences. I distinctly remember the Bible teacher in high school who spent most of the year drilling principles of separation into us. He told us that if we even spelled the word separation wrong on a test, we'd fail the class. We were taught to separate ourselves from anyone who drank alcohol, danced, smoked, allowed women to wear pants, tolerated men who had longer hair. You get the idea. I attended a Bible college in this same church system and was further indoctrinated into this mindset. Gradually, as I grew older, God opened my eyes and heart to how unbiblical this extreme separation and isolation was and how harmful it was as well. As a young adult, I attended a church in the same denomination, but the pastor had the courage to teach the scripture in regards to grace. I distinctly remember a sermon he preached on what the Bible teaches about alcohol. The fact that he would preach this message in a church that had zero tolerance for any use of alcohol was brave. It very well could have cost him his job. His example helped me to see how important it is to understand what the Bible teaches and not just listen to what those around me had been saying. I began to dig deeper into the Bible and when in doubt, go back to it for direction in areas that I once held as benchmarks of a good believer. Practically, this has meant a complete shift in my thinking. To be honest, I still have to frequently check my thoughts and ensure I'm not letting my past inform my actions and thinking. My husband used to say, is is this your past or is how you feel on this issue in the Bible? 
This helped me to begin to reevaluate a lot of my choices. For instance, I really love music. It was an area that I always struggled with in the conservative church I attended, as they had a very narrow view on music that was pleasing to God. I definitely pushed the limits on what was acceptable by their rules, but I still had a small window of tolerance for what was acceptable music. As God moved our family into churches that had more contemporary music, I struggled. I often found myself in tears during the music portion of the service. It was so uncomfortable for me. It is an area that I now intentionally have to remind myself that this is a preference issue, not an area to cause division. The extreme separation I had grown up in led to a powerless and arrogant faith. I had believed we had the corner on truth and any other so-called Christians were not Christians at all. Instead of freedom in Christ, I found myself bound to rules that were used to measure how spiritual I was, and I held others to this standard as well. When I failed at these rules, I was hopeless. But when I was doing well, I pridefully felt like I was a super believer. My heart was not changed, just my actions. But now, I'm learning to walk in the freedom and grace God intends for his followers and embracing others who may worship differently, but who love and serve the same Savior. I'm learning that a passion for Christ is far more important than performance, and obedience to God must be live, driven by love, or it's empty. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. I love that line where she said, the extreme separation I had grown I had grown up in led to a powerless but arrogant faith. There's a, it's almost an exact restatement of a verse in the Bible that says that, um, that, that legalism leads to an acknowledgement of the faith, but a denial of its real power and an absence of its real power. So let's pray about this. Lord, um, we know that within following Jesus, we always struggle between the poles of unity and purity. We recognize that the people who led the church Ellen was part of and who taught at that Bible school, they weren't just hate mongers. We recognize that they were, they were trying to uphold something good, that there had to be, has to be a purity in our faith, a purity in the human heart in order for us to follow you, to believe in you, and to trust in you. And yet we recognize how quickly our pride turns purity into legalism how quickly we turn that into separation, and how quickly we use purity as a way to destroy the grace that you offer in the gospel and the freedom that you offer in Christ. God, will you please help us to be a people who seek a kind of unity that has in the midst of it a beautiful purity in the gospel of Christ so that our purity is not does not produce legalism, but produces freedom in the lives of those who dare to obey you. God, we pray that you'd help us to recognize that there is no safety in just being more conservative or just being more liberal about things. That health and fullness in the gospel is full of a unity and interweaving of many things together, and that we have to learn your way. And in some ways, we will find it um, broader than our way. Sometimes we will find it more constrained than our way. And we recognize we have to be taught by you that there's no shortcut to this. Help us to be a church 
that believes in the purity of the gospel, that is serious about obeying you, and yet also be a church that is unified and gracious in our pursuit of you, that doesn't mistake our preferences for the gospel or the truth. Please help us to do that, Father. We're so prone to it. And we echo what Ellen said at the end. Look, it says in 1 Corinthians that if we, if we could speak with the tongues of angels but didn't have love, that we we're only a clinging gone. Even if we gave our bodies to the flames of martyrdom but ha- did not have love, we would gain nothing. God, will you please rest those truths on our hearts? Would you, would you press them down on us? Would you fill our hearts with their truth that any spiritual performance— done in the absence of the motivation of love is nothing. Would you, will you make us, Lord, a more loving people? Because Christ dwells in our heart and because you have empowered us in our inner person by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, church. The scripture passage this morning is going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. You can find this on page 1778 in the Pew Bibles in front of you if you want to use those. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who is ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, and each part does its work. Amen. Thanks, Becca. You could tell from Ellen's testimony that dealing with differences is one of the most fundamental and difficult problems human beings face. Turns out we're not all exactly the same. And it turns out that that really bothers us. 
because who wouldn't want to be just like us, right? You can notice that um, one of the things, one of the, one of the words um, we in our present American culture can get really touchy about is the word diversity. And it's, in some ways, it's not so much the word, but what we each associate with that word, right? For some people, it means very different things than other people based on your experiences and what seminars have happened at work and what administrators seem to think it means or what you've experienced personally. Um, and so, but on one level, in America, we normally refer to diversity in relationship to people we call minorities, right? Um, in a given geographic location, right? Or we separate things out. We use there's white people and then there's people of color, which I don't particularly like that set of phrases, but some people seem to find it useful. But the, the concept of diversity or difference doesn't really have to do with proportions of population. It just has to do with the fact that we're not the same, right? And the differences that we tend to not want to deal with tend to be the differences that are most characteristic of the people in the lowest percentage of the population. So diversity and minorities tend to go together, but it's very easy to confuse them with each other just because they go together. Diversity just means difference. What do you do with the fact that things are different, right? Now, biblically speaking, God is extremely committed to variance, right? Um, if you read the first chapter of the Bible, God creates all these things according to their kinds, meaning that they were all different. A, a different kind would be a different than the other one. Now, even in the United States, in our, in our segregationist history, the, that word kind in Genesis 1 was partly used as a justification for why different human racial groups should be fully separate from each other. The word in that context was used for exactly the opposite purpose. It's used to demonstrate that God created with a high level of variance things that were not the same. He did it on purpose. He did it because he liked it. And he did it because in that variance, the world would be the way he wanted it to be. Right? The same thing that you see in Genesis 2, where there's only a man. And God says that's a really bad idea for the man to be alone. And so he makes a woman, right? And she's different in the first experience that we have between the man and the woman is what will be Adam's experience in reaction to the fact that God has made another human being and has made her very different, right? We'd sort of take for granted that he makes a woman. He could have made another dude, right? And just made us like split off babies from our feet. You know, like if he didn't do that, he intentionally made a, a woman and the original masculine response was, what a great idea. You noted the word original in that sentence? Right. Because after Genesis 3 and the fall, all of a sudden, one of the first things that happens is people start to struggle with differences, right? Immediately, one of the effects of the curse, God doesn't say, I'm cursing you for this, right? There's only, there's only two curses in Genesis 3, and the curses are not laid on the man and the woman. One is laid on the, the serpent, and the other is laid on the ground but not the people. Now, the people are involved in and affected by the curse, but the fact that he says to the man and the woman that their relationship is going to become much more problematic, that they're going to basically fight with each other for power, that's, that's what's going to happen now because of their differences. The result of the curse, how we're going to respond sinfully is 
that instead of seeing our differences as this amazing thing that's part of God's good creation that he loves, we are going to start to have a problem with it, right? Then as you move through the rest of Genesis, look in chapters 4 and chapter 5, you begin to see that people, even under the curse, begin to increase their variations. So in chapter 4, even in the sinful line of Cain, people start specializing in arts, right? So there's one group of people, and that family specializes in being shepherds. They live in tents so that they're mobile. They start breeding animals. They become the shepherds of the earth, right? And they like, they specialize in that. Their family, their clans focus on doing that the best. And then another group, it says, the, he, this guy was the father of all the people who play the harp and lyre, right? And so there was this, this other clan of people that focused on making the best music possible with a diversity of instruments, right? And so the arts begin to flourish. And then there's another guy named Tubal Cain who his family starts working with metals. They like start digging in the earth and getting bronze and iron, and they start making tools so that you can do stuff, right? And so even under sin, the creativity built into human beings leads us to different pursuits, and those different pursuits become mutually helpful. Because I guarantee you that the people who made music still like to wear clothes made out of wool, and the people who were out in the desert all the time liked to hear some real music, and the people who were trying to figure out how to do agriculture liked the idea of having a metal plow. So even under sin, even before the line of Seth brings in a group of people who would add the specialization of calling on the name of the Lord and trying to work all this diversity back into a unity, human beings recognize that we are called to a certain kind of differences. Even if we, even if we were semitically the same, because those people were the same race. But they were still separating in their capacities and cultivating different capacities because— the, the creation cultural mandate was for us to go out and subdue and bring out the creative potential of the whole world, which takes a lot of different stuff. Now, in the book of Ephesians, one of the ways the Apostle Paul tries to bring us back to God's original design by bringing us to the implications of redemption is that in redemption, God is bringing us back to that original unity in the midst of that original set of differences or true diversity. He's going to bring about a unity in Christ. He will never repent of his original commitment to diversity or difference in variation. And the way he's going to bring that about, about is through something that he calls maturity. And when diversity or difference comes together with unity and maturity in Christ— you get what the scriptures call fullness in this passage. Fullness. Which is, you could, you could put it in three categories just to make it easy to think about. Beauty, peace, and productivity. Right? There is an objective beauty to a unified, mature, and diverse people. They're just the way God wants them to be. They're strong. They're unified. They're varied. They can do anything. There's, a, there's an objective, external beauty to such a people. And that is part of the beauty that God says he wants to reach the world with. Right. Secondly, there's peace. That is, inside yourself and inside all of us together, there can be a peace, a, a emotional relaxation that things are fine this way. 
that we're not at war with each other and we're not at war with ourselves, and we're living in the world the way God made it to be and we're living out the redemption that he made in Christ the way it's supposed to be. There's peace. And then third, there's productivity. We can do stuff. We can get stuff done. There's all kinds of different needs that come up. All kinds of different things we need done. Other people need done. I mean, guys are notorious for this. Like, you don't just make friends. You make friends with guys who can do stuff. Because when stuff needs to get done, you want to call your buddy that knows how to do that. So you want a guy that can, like, rebuild a carburetor. That's important if you can't do that. You know what I mean? You want a guy that knows how to fish, fix washers and dryers. You, you, want to, you, you want to have a buddy who knows where the wall I are in early fall. Like, you, you want all these people, right? Like, a lot of guys have in their list, like, a zombie apocalypse tribe of guys that they would, like, get— Right? Like, they've got a list in their head. These are the ten guys that I want with me when the zombie apocalypse comes because this guy knows how to grow stuff, and this guy knows how to shoot, and this guy's good with an axe, you know, like, and a chainsaw. Like, yeah, like, 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 I want Dave on my team with his chainsaws if zombies come around. He's on my list. Right? Boom. <laughs> I'm working on my skills, too. So that, that's part of getting stuff done right? If all of us were good typists, can you imagine what our world would be like? Or, or name something—imagine imagine if we were all incredibly good at the violin. Just all of us were all violin players, right? We just would have a really nice, beautiful time together until we all starved. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's— So the Apostle Paul uses this picture of the body because when you think about physical bodies, you can see all three of those things, right? Physical bodies do not work if they are not very highly varied and diverse in their systems and functionalities, right? Organisms like ourselves are extraordinarily complex. We have lots of different systems that do lots of different things, right? And it's pretty amazing. And it's pretty amazing also how unified they are. They all work together. They're all taking signals from each other. And what we know tragically from medical experiences that you get, like, one of these systems out of whack, and it can, like, cause havoc in everything, right? And then also maturity, right? If the human body doesn't develop, that's not—we don't think that's cute. Like, if a kid never got older than two, we would be like, oh, look, he's two and he's seven. You know, like, that's great. He's still cute. No, we'd be like, this is bad, man. It's not a good thing. Right? What we want is for them to grow in stature, in size, in strength, in endurance. We want them to grow up to adulthood, and we want them to grow with all three of those things in perfect proportion. All their systems have to grow in unity with each other, in perfect proportion, to full maturity, and that would be perfection, in the sense that the person was completely whole. That's what perfection means in the Bible. It, means, it doesn't mean the best that you could possibly imagine philosophically. It just means whole, mature, or complete. That's what the word perfect means. Perfect. You're all perfect. Right? My daughters sometimes say that now. They're like, I'm perfect in the Hebrew sense. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you are. <clears throat> okay. So let's, let's focus on how this works out in this passage, Okay. Varied grace is God's plan for our fullness, right? The goal in this passage is what the Bible calls fullness. Fullness, right? 
the components of that are he gives us a certain varied set of graces. In that varied set of graces, he uses that varied set of graces themselves to develop his people into unity and maturity so that we will have all three working together and we will have what he calls fullness. Does that make sense? Good. And this is important because in the scriptures, there is no means by which to experience this thing called fullness unless we go according to this plan. Right? So if you're like, I don't really like the diversity thing, or I don't really like the unity thing, or I don't really like the maturity thing. I want to accept Jesus and that be it, man. I don't want to be all serious about religion. Listen, okay, I'm not going to make you do anything, but I'm just going to tell you, if you want to experience your destiny, if you want to experience what you're made for, if you want to experience your actual human potential in Christ, the only way to experience what he calls fullness is to embrace the varied graces that he gives us in the pursuit of unity in Christ towards maturity, together with all God's people. Because if you read this, the context in this is always the lot of us together. It's never one person, right? Okay, so we better keep moving here. All right, so a few things about this. One, varied graces are inheritance. It's not a liability, okay? So I said before that in Genesis, God creates things varied, right? But in this passage, that's not the argument. In this passage, he justifies the idea that God has given varied graces to all of us in the measure that he chooses. And he says, because this is why it's written, or this is why it says, and then he quotes from Psalm 68, 18. And listen, I cannot go into all the technical exegesis of this. A lot of ink has been spilled about this passage. But I just want you to know, if you've read any of that stuff, I know about it. I just can't include it because of time constraints, okay? There's a lot of interpretational stuff we could do here, but we're not going to. The Apostle Paul says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. Okay? Now, here's what that means. It says, literally, he took captivity captive, or he took the captives captive. Now, that can either be a linguistic redundancy, right? I, I don't know. I can't think of one right now. It could just be like, he took captives, and those people are captives, so they're captives, right? Or what it means is, he took captive people who were already captives, right? That is, that as a conquering hero, he entered into a situation, and in winning a great victory, he took captive to the train of his victory all of the captives of the people that he conquered. Does that make sense? Now, the context in Psalm 68 is mainly the exodus, the Jewish people coming out of Egypt. Do you see the idea? Jesus comes, or God comes in as the conquering hero. He defeats the Egyptians with the ten plagues in the Passover. And then he leads the train of Jewish people out into the desert to save them. You see? He takes captive the captives. But you see, it doesn't end there. You see, sometimes we think that it's a beautiful thing that in Christ we have been made free from the slavery of sin. Right? That's the metaphor exchange in the New Testament. That like the Jews come out of Egypt, we can come out of the slavery of sin and how it dominates us and destroys us, right? But it's not just that. Because it says in the book of Exodus that when the Jewish people came out of the slavery of Egypt, because of the plagues and because the Egyptian people wanted them to leave so badly, and maybe because they had a certain amount of remorse because they had enslaved them, it says that they freely gave 
like an enormous amount of gifts to the Jewish people. And it says, so the Jewish people plundered the Egyptians. That is, they took as much plunder as if they had militarily conquered them without militarily conquering them. The people just gave it to them. An enormous amount of goods that they had earned. <laughs> They'd been enslaved for a long time, right? And these people gave it to them just to get them out of there. And so they, they didn't leave Egypt empty-handed. God had not only led out the captives as the new captor who conquered the new people, he led, he led them out with and this abundance of plunder. All this stuff. Because he didn't just want the slaves to be free. Like if you're a slave and you have nothing, and all of a sudden you're made free in this kind of ancient world, like what's going to happen to you? You, got, you don't have any food. You don't have any assets. You don't have anything to like grow stuff. You don't have any land. You've got nothing. Is it really that great that you're free? Well, yes and no, I guess, right? In fact, some of the Israelites, remember, they said they wanted to go back to Egypt? Because freedom's hard, man. It's hard. It's your responsibility. Freedom comes with a bunch of responsibilities. And so, but what, what God was interested in them is, yes, you're going to be free. And yes, you're going to have all the responsibilities of freedom, and that's going to be really hard. And because you've been living in slavery— you're actually not even morally or mentally or spiritually prepared to be free. That's going to be a process. Okay, that's why if you come to Jesus and you've been living like really not the way God wanted you to live for a long time, and you come to Jesus, do not expect that in like 20 minutes, you're going to assimilate to the godliness of somebody who's been following Jesus for 30 years. You're, you're going to struggle because the, the character and the disciplines of freedom— Bearing all of its responsibilities have to be built in your character, and that just takes time. You're going to act like a slave to sin sometimes, because you don't really understand what it means to be free yet. Don't be discouraged by that. Doubly commit yourself to being able to bear the weight of freedom and pursuing the fullness of Christ. Does that make sense? What you can also say about the idea of plunder, too, is though, is that plunder is by its definition varied, right? Like, if you think about ancient Near East, like, raiding or, like, or uh, uh, the, the conquering of an area, you don't just take the money. You take everything. If you look at the places in the Bible that talk about actual plunder taken, it's always exceedingly varied. It's like grain and livestock and people and weapons and armor and clothing and oil and wine and foods and all this different stuff, right? Do you get it? Paul says, that's—God gave varied graces to all of his church. Don't you get it? That's why it says— he led out the captives in his train, that is, you were freed in Christ, and he gave gifts to men and women that are the plunder of his victory, and it's always varied. Like, you get a horse, and you get some silver, and you get some grain, and like everybody's—plunder is varied. And so if he gives to the people he's now freed out of his plunder, it's always going to be varied. And he's saying that's what it's like. We all get different things. It's all—and we get a different measure of things. But you need to understand that these varied graces that we've received, whether it's your personal aptitudes, whether it's your personal wealth, whether it's your creativity, whether it's skills that you've developed, whether it's supernatural spiritual gifts that you receive, right? That's all part of it, man. It's part of your inheritance. It's no good not liking it <laughs> or not liking the responsibilities that it creates for you. Right? Because in a world of grace, every gift produces a responsibility. Freely you've received, Jesus said. What did he say right after that? In, the, in Matthew's Gospel, he says, freely you've received, so freely give. Right? 
Okay, the second thing is, is that varied grace is God's plan for our maturity. It's God's intention that we use the varied graces that he gives us in order to become mature. You cannot become mature in the way God wants you to become mature without the varied graces that God has given to his people, is what it says. Which means a couple of things. One, it means that you have to be part of the local church. You literally have to be with the people who have the varied graces that God has given to make you mature. It's one of the reasons why solo Christianity doesn't work. Or, or you can't be a Christian and be spiritual but not religious. If by religious you mean participating in organized religion. If by organized religion you mean the gathering of God's people together to love and serve each other in a way that leads us to maturity. It doesn't work. I mean, I, I realize it's a cute little aphorism that people have said since the 60s or whenever, probably since like 2000 BC in some form. But it's, it's never been true and it's not God's plan. Right? If you are a Christian and you say that kind of thing, you are at odds with the Lord. And the times where I've done that, man, the frequency by which I end up being wrong is like, man, it is high. Right? And so in this case, he gives some examples of graces that he gives. So he's like, you know, it's Jesus himself who gave the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, and the pastors— Right? In this case, people who have ministries of the word that lead the church towards maturity. And, and I think the reason he gives that example is because those people should be fairly obvious. I mean, hopefully if you live in a, a healthy functioning church, you would be like, oh yeah, right, this pastor, that elder, or this person, like they helped me grow towards maturity and that was really helpful. Yeah, I get that. And then he goes, yeah, Jesus himself gave that gift, Right? So, for example, if you've been coming to High Point Church, right, and you, you feel like you've benefited towards your spiritual maturity from my leadership, right, that what he's saying here is, yeah, don't you see? That was God gave the varied grace that I have to do that work and the other people who you've benefited from. And that's how Jesus, through a varied set of graces, is bringing us to maturity. But remember, he says in verse 7, that to each one of us, grace has been given as Jesus apportioned it, which means this. Though he gives these five examples, everyone has received some form of varied grace that God is using to bring us all to maturity. Does that make sense? And it works something like this, where these leader people are equipping the saints, is the literal word, the holy ones. That is people who already believe in Jesus. They're equipping them so that they can build up the body of Christ. You're like, wait, aren't the saints the body of Christ? I mean, aren't those two categories interchangeable? Sort of, but the saints refers to a group that already exists, and the body of Christ refers to all who are believers. If you build up the body of Christ, you're doing two things. One, you're expanding the members of the body of Christ, and more focused in this passage, you're building them all up towards maturity, right? Because maturity— is God's, God's plan for our maturity is not just your suffering. It's not just your study. Biblically speaking, like if you're like, Nick, I'm like, I believe in Bible study and prayer and personal devotions and private worship and all this stuff. I need, people need to do more reading the Bible. They need to read the Bible more and they need to pray more in their prayer closet. And people need to do that stuff. That's really important. My answer is, yes. I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I totally agree with that. Um, most of us are super lazy about that stuff. But listen, if you want to read the Bible, and if you want to actually use Scripture's plan 
for the production of maturity in you. Listen, people in the Bible, they didn't have Bibles, you guys. Like, people couldn't afford books until after the printing press. It, it's so anachronistic to think that, like, you know, people don't have a written Bible. I don't know how— this, That's nonsense. The scriptural plan for spiritual development is us being with each other. That's the Bible's spiritual plan for our development. That God is going to give gifts to people in his church. We're supposed to come together and love and serve each other. And in the loving and serving of each other, being together with each other, we will grow. Which makes sense. Because if we're supposed to be rooted and established in love, and if the end of which everything that matters is love, right? 1 Corinthians 13, like you can do, you can surrender your body to the flames, you can speak in the tongues of angels, you can, you can do you do all kinds of—but if, 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 if there's not love, it's nothing, right? If love is so central, it makes sense that God would have us learn it in a lab where there's other annoying people that make it difficult. That makes sense, right? If it was—if it was ethereal, secret spiritual knowledge, or if it was like meditational, transcendental oneness with the universe, you could do that through asceticism and meditation on a mountainside, or like you could do that. But if the end goal— is love. And you just can't learn that by yourself. I mean, like, what would you do if, like, you had a surgeon, and they're, like, going to cut out some part of your body, and you were like, so what's your training? He's like, I've done a ton of reading on this. <laughs> you know, like, have you ever, like, operated on a body? No. Like, what about a rabbit? Have you ever dissected a rabbit? No, I don't get my hands dirty with that stuff. I'm ready to, but I'm ready to do this, right? Like, I, I was, I was at somebody's house, cutting down, I was going to cut down trees for them. And they were like, have you ever done this? And I was like, listen, I just read the Tree Feller's Bible, man. Which I had done. And I'm pretty good at transferring cognitive knowledge into practice. It's just my personality type. I'm, I'm pretty good at that. But they still were like, so you're saying you read about the angles and stuff. I was like, yeah, I'm ready to do this, man. He's like, my house is like 15 feet that way. It's like, it's going to be fine. All right. It turned out fine. But the second guessing was appropriate, right? Okay, we got to keep moving, sorry. Um, third is unity unleashes the good of God's varied grace. Unity unleashes it, right? Because we have to be together and serving one another with our gifts towards maturity. You can't do that if there's no unity. I mean, picture, for example, like a kid whose body was growing in maturity or in unity, like totally out of proportion with itself. Like you got some kid, and like, he's growing a grown-up arm. He's like five years old in the children's ministry, and he's growing like a grown-up arm. And that's it, man. Or in like this ear. And they're just like, he's got this— and like he's walking around, and he's got this gun, you know what I mean? But it, like, if he reaches down, like he'll— his, he can reach like seven inches past his foot without bending over, right? You'd be like, that poor kid? Right? Physically speaking, in terms of the human body, we have to grow at this unified rate. Does that make sense? And churches can do that. Churches can be focused on certain things, growing together, and people can actually grow at a fairly similar rate if they're in unity with each other. And you get the sense where the church is kind of growing together. Right? And if it, the church isn't unified, you don't get that. You get all these factions and varied groups and all these blah, blah, blah. And you don't get the sense of growth, and you don't participate in the varied graces everybody has, which decreases the amount of maturity everybody receives. A lack of unity is a problem in and of itself because it destroys the peace and beauty of the body of Christ. 
But without unity, it also destroys its productivity and its capacity for maturity, and it nullifies the grace of God, right? Now, you may have heard that phrase in relationship to believe in the gospel, right? You can't add anything to the gospel. The gospel is the sheer grace of God, the gift of Jesus Christ. Like you, if you add anything to it, you nullify the grace of God. You can't do that. You add nothing to the finished work of Jesus. Yes, also true. Also true that when you take a gift of God and you destroy its capacity to work by your disobedience, and God calls that gift a grace, you nullify the grace of God by your behavior. And disunity, especially wanton and flippant disunity, flippant disunity. Like, we're going to have disagreements about stuff, and some of those disagreements are going to be serious disagreements. Life is complicated. Choosing what to do is hard. I'm not minimizing that. But mature people who recognize the inheritance of our varied graces, that's a good thing, not a bad thing, and who are committed to unity can be unified. And they can deal with their disagreements much better. For example, if you look at this passage, the, the whole passage is about unity in the end. But the Apostle Paul is saying there's three things we need for unity. One is you need the virtues of unity. That's verses one to three. You need to be merciful and compassionate with other people and be willing to bear with each other's weaknesses, right? The virtues of unity. Because if you can't put up with somebody being an idiot, you can't be unified with anybody, right? Try raising teenagers. Right? What's their, what's their struggle? They just can't stop and be compassionate with somebody else. They're like, they're like, they're spending all their bandwidth on their own life. Like trying to make, how do I do this? How do I make, and then somebody else messes with them and they just freak out. And you're like, just have a little compassion. Right? And they're like, but I don't, but we're, but listen, guess where they learned that? They watch us do that. Right? Like don't, they're a little less sophisticated in how they do it, but they watch us do that. We don't have the virtues of unity, right? And then there's the theology or the vision of unity. He says, don't you see? It's one baptism, one faith, one God and Father of us all. There's, we're, we're one. We all, we believe in this one thing. We can't be divided when we're unified by everything that is related to Christ, right? And then lastly, there's the matrix of unity, which is the varied graces. You have to embrace the fact that our differences are a grace. They're a gift of God for our unity and our maturity, right? And different ones of us are, are different about which one of those things we ignore. Some of us are really into the philosophy of unity. The Bible says in John 17 that we should all be one as Jesus is one with the Father, and we should all be one, and there should be oneness, and we should have oneness, and we should all have oneness, right? And then somebody annoys you, and you're like, I hate that person. Right? That's a good emphasis on this one. Not really paying attention to that one. Does that make sense? Or if you're like, I just really like these worship songs, but I don't like that. I didn't like that one we did during the offering. It was so repetitive. I just don't like repetitive songs, right? Okay. Good. You're, okay. Like, maybe you aren't good on those, but you're definitely not good on that one. Okay? Right? Because why do we do gospel songs? We do gospel songs because, mainly— the blues-based African-American community produce songs out of oppressive experiences that are designed to loose bound-up emotions, especially those that are oppressed by oppressors on the outside. And the emotional and psychological repetition of themes that are true raises us up out of our repressiveness and allows us to fully embrace them emotionally and live them out. Okay? 
Now, that's good for white people too because we emotionally repress ourselves. Right? There's, lo- there's lots of ways in which human beings don't express freely the emotional fountain inside of us so that we can have the strength of vivid living emotion. Right? And so, and, and we don't like it when people push us on what we need to grow in that. And so, people who don't like that, they don't like gospel music. They don't like repetitive memes and themes and songs, right? And it's a misunderstanding of what we need. Same thing with the hymns. You also need to think clearly, right? You need this. You need to, like, order your theology and understand what you're singing and why you believe it and how it relates together, why it's rooted, right? That's expressed in different arts. And so we might think that we're good at it, but then when we engage with the church's art, we, we can realize which one of these we're not up for. Does that make sense? Can't say more on that now. Okay. A couple of applications to end. Seven. The first is um, gracious diversity, unity, and maturity are a fullness won by the triumph of Christ. Okay? One of the ways to show Jesus that we are thankful for the beauty of the glory of what he's achieved in his incarnation, death, and resurrection is to embrace the fullness that he's given us in its entirety. This passage says that it, the reason we can have this It's not because we're good people. It's not because we're strong people. It's not because we're smart people. It's not because we're educated people. It's not because we're rich people. Or it's not because we hate rich people or educated people. The reason we can have this is because the triumphant conquering Jesus liberated the captives to sin as the great general of the universe, and he tore out of the hands of our oppressors that which he wanted to give us in inheritance and gave it back to us and put us in a spacious land so that we could live free. It's our inheritance. It is, a, it is won by Christ, and it is a fullness that you and I are meant to have. You have to believe that. The second is um, our inheritance is not just spiritual freedom, but a certain kind of spiritual wealth, right? We're not just freed captives. We are freed captives that the general has given a great plunder to. And we are meant to have that wealth, that spiritual wealth that the Bible calls fullness. The fullness of a diverse productivity bound together with a unity filled with a maturity. That that fullness and the productivity and peace and beauty that comes in it is meant to be ours, right? The third thing is not every division and difference in humanity is a varied grace. One of the reasons why some people struggle with the word diversity is because sometimes people use it with the fallacy of equivocation that as as long as you just call any difference diversity— then that difference is a good difference and therefore should be embraced and accepted by everyone. Which is, of course, a misuse of the word diversity, right? Diversity just means variance. It doesn't judge anything about the variance. And so one of the things Christians recognize and almost everybody realizes is not every difference is a good difference, right? Some are just like they don't matter like what sports team you like. It's just a difference. It's not like we should be like, you know what, we need to do more to include cowboy fans, you know? I mean, like, if you're being mean to Michigan fans when they come in here, like, that is wrong, and you need to stop doing that. But, like, but some, some differences in us aren't good. They're bad differences. Right? Things aren't all—so you remember, okay, well, like, but how do, you, how do you decide, right? Well, you shouldn't just decide by how you feel, okay? That's point number one, okay? You shouldn't just decide how you feel. The Bible actually gives us really good parameters. I'm sorry, this is a complicated slide. And I have zero minutes left, okay? But the Bible actually gives us pretty straightforward parameters 
for how to decide on this stuff, okay? So the first is like, is the varied grace part of God's creative gift, right? Is it part of creation or part of the work of redemption? So for example, take race, for example. What produced race? Did the fall produce race? Right? Did, but, or did human beings just vary on the basis of just having babies and stuff, right? Well, it's, it's pretty likely the capacity for racial differences was built into our creation. And so therefore, it's, it's really odd. And of course, the Bible in other places later on says that, says that like, it's not something you can change. It's just part of what you're made up of. It's, he just says, can, can the leopard change his spots or can somebody change their skin color? Because of course not. It's part of created variance. Race, by definition, biblically speaking, is just, it's not, it's not, it's part of creation. And therefore, it's part of probably God's intentional variation that he wanted. Does that make sense? Um, similarly, in redemption, there are certain spiritual gifts that God gives or capacities that he gives that are part of the gifts he gives in the gospel and in the Holy Spirit. If, if you can recognize something as part of the varied grace of God in any of those mechanisms, then the answer is, do I embrace this? And the answer is yes. You embrace it, and you work for unity and maturity in it, right? But if you're like, wait, no, I, there's this thing. I don't think it's—I don't think it's part of the varied grace of God. Okay, great. No. All right, so the next thing is, is it something that you should accept on the basis of toleration or not coercing other people? Is it something that you should accept in the provisional sense of acceptance of, I'm not going to try to make you change— Right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you be you, and we're gonna have a relationship of persuasion with each other rather than one of force, right? Because sometimes it's just, you just have to let other people be them, and you just have to back off. Not because what they're doing isn't maybe wrong. Maybe it's wrong even. But the second question is, am I the right authority to discipline that person into the right behavior? And sometimes the answer is not anything beyond telling them the truth. And sometimes it's not even really your place to tell them the truth in a particular situation, in a particular way, at least. Does that make sense? So sometimes, no, it's not part of God's very grace, but it is something you should accept by toleration. So what do you do? Well, if it's something you should accept by toleration, you should work for unity and maturity in that thing. Do your best to work for unity and maturity. Maybe you can change your mind. Maybe you can help. Who knows, right? Now, if you're like, well, no, it's not actually just something I should tolerate. It's like stuff people are doing wrong. Like, okay, great. Why are they doing it wrong? Right? It, we put this in the wedding vows, that we will bear with each other's weaknesses and infirmities. I remember one pastor saying to me when I was first entering the ministry about somebody who was doing something really wrong. He said, do you think that they're doing it out of willful, willfulness or infirmity? That's a really good question. Right? Some people are like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And some people will just, like, they— they wish they could not do it, and they still do it. Like, they're, they're, they're infirmed. There's, a, if there's kind of a—the a, a, kind of sickness that makes you physically weak. That's what an infirmity is. It's like—it's not like a disease. It's just something that makes you weaker than you would otherwise be. And while you're still under the pressure of that thing that makes you weaker than you would otherwise be, you're behaving in ways that you wouldn't, right? And one of the questions you have to ask yourself as a believer, even when somebody's doing something that is objectively, morally, and spiritually wrong is— is this person doing this out of infirmity or willfulness? And you see, if the person is doing it out of infirmity, at least in a significant portion, then what they need is not mainly to be told where to go, right? What they need is an additional strength from the outside to help them. 
and patience of bearing with them until they overcome the infirmity and grow in strength and maturity so that they can come back into unity with the truth. Does that make sense? In their behavior. Now for some, you'll be like, no, you know what? It's not—but it's not infirmity. They are literally teaching the opposite of the gospel. They believe the opposite of the gospel, and they do not like the gospel, and like— this is bad, right? Okay, now this is—listen. This is only if they proclaim to be believers and they are part of the church. I'm not saying you should do this, like, go down to, like, the—to, like, Target and do this. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. All right, this is for the, the body of Christ. If in the body of Christ it's neither this nor this, then it falls under what the next verses say, that we get thrown around by every wind of false teaching. Does that make sense? And it, it falls within the realm of false teaching, and it requires either rejection or discipline, which I can't go into all that right now. But even when we do reject false teaching, we're still ultimately doing it in order to work for and embrace unity and maturity as best we can. Does that make sense? Even when we make, take a step for purity rather than toleration, we're still doing it graciously because we're doing it out of love. Our goal is therapeutic. Right? Even in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, yeah, that guy that like married his stepmom, you need to throw that guy out of the church right now. And he, but then he says this, and the reason you need to do that is he needs to be subjected to the real realities of his decision. And he needs to know and feel in his heart that he's outside of the grace of Christ, that he has rejected the grace of the gospel, so that hopefully, so that, and then he says, so that Satan can screw with him. You're like, that's kind of mean. He's like, so that— after he gets the tar beaten out of him, he may come back to himself and in humility come back to Jesus. Even the most negative and the most disciplinary actions done in the name of Christ by us are always done as graciously as we can and with therapeutic intention, redemptive intention. Now they may not have redemptive results, they may actually have damning results. But they're always done like a surgeon trying to give a person a chance to live who has a fatal illness. You get in there, you do the best you can. You try to give them a chance to live. And they might live and they might die. That's it, man. And so, based on this, you can recognize you don't have to believe that every variance in humanity is good. Not every variance in humanity is good. But make sure as Christians, we have to be so careful that we do not, in the narrowness of our own preferences, reject anything that is part of the varied graces of God. Which are a lot of the things that human beings normally do reject. Right? Okay, I'm gonna just—I'll wrap this up, I promise. Okay. The fullness that the Apostle Paul is speaking about is not an automatic reality. It's something we have to embrace in real practice. It's 100% a gift of God. It is won by the conquering hero, Jesus. But listen, the fullness that he's talking about, all the beauty and the peace and the productivity and the glory and the joy and the love of the fullness of Christ does not come out of the sky by magic the minute you accept Jesus. It is something hard fought and won in the practice of life together in the body of Christ. And it has to be lived for. And, in, and I use this language advisedly even worked for. Therefore, it has to be pursued together. I'm not going to spend time on that right now. Which means this, for some of you, some of you are fairly disappointed with your experience of following Jesus and knowing Christ and being a Christian. 
You feel like there should be more. And like, why don't Christians love each other more? And isn't this just a big farce? And I've met all these legalistic people, and I feel like there should be more happening in my heart. And like, I just really still feel emotionally flatlined. And blah. oh, it's like, I just don't feel like it's happening. Yes. Yes. You think the Bible doesn't predict that experience? It absolutely predicts that experience. If you do not pursue in the varied grace of God, in the unity of Christ, for the maturity of the saints to experience the fullness of Christ in your life, among other people, in loving relationships, in sacrificial ways, you will not experience the fullness. And you were made not just for salvation. You were, just, you were not just made for justification so that you could go to heaven. You were made for fullness. You were liberated from the slavery of sin, not just to say, oh, I used to live in Egypt. You were liberated to experience the fullness. And it requires pursuit. But there is more. Right? And last, you have to go along with God's message, methods to get his transforming ends. Like you might be like, man, maturity would be great. Unity would be great. Yeah, we should all embrace God's very graces. That would be fantastic. Yes, but you can't have just one or just two. So for example, you might say, Nick, I really believe in unity. Unity is so important. And I actually am really big on diversity. Diversity is super great, right? But, but you don't actually pursue maturity in Christ. You're not really going after holiness with everything that's in you. Well, here's the problem with that. You won't be strong enough either to accept the varied graces of God or to be in unity with people who are difficult. It all goes together. And you see— what, the demonic temptation and the temptation of the flesh is always for you only to give up enough so that you'll still work really hard and it will produce nothing. <laughs> right? Like if you, want, if you want a farmer to quit, you don't just burn down everything in his house. Right? You just—all you got to do is just do enough so that he'll do everything he normally does, but it'll produce nothing. Just put a, some poison on his seeds. He'll go out with the combine, and he'll plow, and he'll spray, and he'll water, and he'll do, all, he'll do all the math that you have to do now. He'll do all this stuff to grow crops. Did you spray seeds so they won't germinate? Grow nothing. All you got to do, do is interfere with one part of a process where everything depends on everything. Like, how many pieces of a mousetrap do you have to disable so that a mouse can't die? There's seven pieces to a mousetrap. You disable any one part, and no mice are going to die. Do you understand? Similarly, when God says, trust me, obey me with all your heart, do all the things I've told you to do, give your whole life to me. And we'd be like, well, I can, I can do these things, but maybe not that. And we'll, we'll. Anytime you do that, you're disabling one part of the mousetrap. And then two years down the road, you're like, I don't like this Christianity thing. God isn't meeting me where I live. What's happening with this? I don't think that this is good. I don't feel fulfilled. God will not participate in that. He does not want just unity or just diversity or just maturity. He wants it all. He will have it all for you or you will have nothing because he's not going to give you just the thing you pursue and make you happy with the anemic results of what you've gone after. He's going to make you sick on the thing that you've tried to suck up that isn't even right. So that, like the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, you will find yourself. You will say, wait, this isn't right. I don't like this. This is a good listen. Anytime we take just part of Christian faith or just part of God, God will not bless it. 
not because he hates you, not because he doesn't love you, not because he doesn't want to give to you. He does it because he wants all of you. Because he has a destiny for you. Because he has a fullness, not just for you, but for us. But if we surrender to Christ, to his varied graces, to his call to maturity, and to the unity that we're meant to have in it, we can and we will experience in this life, in this place, among us, this thing that he calls fullness. And there are no regrets in Fullness Town. Understand? Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would take some of the things I've said and use it for the purposes of your glory and that you would bless your people and help them and support them. And I pray that you would minister your truths to us in a way that helps us to receive them. I pray that we would embrace the diversity that you create in your varied graces and that we would embrace all of it and that we would experience the wealth of the plunder that you purchased in your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.